much for coming. Um, let's, uh, let's begin in earnest. We've, we left off last time with uh, the final two kings. Um, the final two kings of Malchus based David. Once again, the northern kingdom has uh, been bereft of a leader for quite some time. And the only real Jewish leadership left as Malchus based David, and these are the final of the kings of, uh, of the Davidic kingdom. So we're going to jump right into our sources, um, some fascinating stuff uh, to show you tonight. So we left off last time, just going to go ahead and, uh, and mute everybody. Um, okay, we left off last time by, uh, by talking about Melech Tzidkiah and the Gerush of the Gerush Amazgar. So we're going to turn to that very, very quickly. Um, and we're going to see a number of things that are, are really coming to the fore during this time of the year. Uh, we begin Amir Tzashem this Tuesday night, this Wednesday, uh, with the nine days uh, which culminates really, uh, I don't know if you could say it like that, which culminates in Tisha B'Av. So we have the Gerush of the Gerush of Mazger. Uh, Netzar has risen in Bavel, and he's basically established himself on two accounts. The first way that Nebuchadnezzar established himself in the Babylonian kingdom was by an appeal to their Akkadian roots. The Babylonian kingdom had been around for many centuries. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar I, if you'll recall, was already in the 10th century uh, before the Common Era. Nebuchadnezzar II, which is the Nebuchadnezzar that we're talking about, sees himself as a continuation. He very famously uh, builds a, 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 a massive road leading into the main city of the kingdom, and he, uh, he, he basically constructs a mosaic, a huge mosaic, uh, and all this in fealty to the god of the Babylonians, Marduk. He returns back the idols, and he, uh, he shows himself to be a champion of ancient Bavel, somebody that is uh, almost lahavdil, you can imagine, like an Ezra and Nehemiah, of the Babylonians, he's returning them back to their glory. He's returning them back to their, uh, to their previous days. That's on one account. The second account, he's a brilliant battlefield tactician, and he is a ruthless, uh, a ruthless warrior in the sense that any setbacks that the Babylonians experience, at least early on in the battlefield, all Nebuchadnezzar does is they repair back to Bavel and they just build more chariots. So he wins the acclaim and the fealty of the Babylonian people. And he decides that the time has come to lay siege to Yerushalayim and uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army reaches Yerushalayim. Yehoyachin, who is the son of Yehoyakim, becomes king for three months and he's exiled. There was a sense, um, the Mepharshim tell us, that Yehoyachin was going to take revenge on Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Yehoyakim, uh, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, Yehoyakim is not going to get the burial of a king, let alone a regular person. His body rots in the fields. We talked about his wickedness in the previous year. He's exiled, and Sidkiah, his uncle, a son, another son of Yoshiahu, becomes king. And uh, we mentioned, and we'll just read the verses again, Ben Shmon Esrei Shana Yehoyachin Bimalko Veshlosha Chadashim Malach Yushalayim. Yehoyachin was only king for three months at the age of 18. He did evil in the eyes of God as his father had done. So Nebuchadnezzar at this time lays siege to Yerushalayim, which is a walled city, and it's quite difficult, even if the people are downtrodden, uh, to take control of it. Nebuchadnezzar is at the head of the battlements of the siege. So basically, Yehoyachin offers himself up. 
He offers himself up to Nebuchadnezzar. He offers himself up together with his, with his royal retinue in the sense that if he gives himself over to the king, maybe Nebuchadnezzar will have some mercy on them. So I'm just going to pause here to talk for a moment about a, a, a fascinating historical mystery. We have a description over here that after Yehoiachin had left, after Yehoiachin had taken out his people from the city, and had offered himself up together with his royal retinue, uh, that we see that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed um, the, the golden vessels that Shlomo HaMelech had made. That he, um, that he, he means that he crushed them up very, very small. And uh, it seems that already a generation earlier, uh, apparently it was even Yehoiakim, according to some, apparently a generation earlier, the Aron Kodesh, the most important vessel in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, it's not sitting, um, even though Steven Spielberg wants to tell us differently, it's not sitting in some government, uh, in some government warehouse burning a hole through some cardboard box. Um, but uh, the original uh, sense was that they, that, they, uh, that they hid it away, that they, they hid away the Aron Hashem underneath the under that Yoshiao Hamelech was the one who hid it underneath the Temple Mount, and that Yehoiakim moved it to another location afterwards. But there is a sense over here that there was a destruction of uh, a destruction or a taking apart of many of the vessels of the Temple uh, already at this time when Yehoiachin and his royal retinue leave, and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, not to be outdone, goes ahead and destroys them by Yikatzets that he he, cry, he crushes them and grinds them up. The Higlat Kol Yerushalayim and all of Jerusalem is exiled with Kol Asarim, all the officers, Kol Gibirei Achayil and all the warriors, Aseris Alafim Gola. Ten thousand people are exiled at this time, and this is called the exile of the Cheresh Umazger. The Cheresh Umazger are the craftsmen, the artisan classes, the people who are responsible for building and keeping Yerushalayim running. Loni Sharzula Dalat Am Haaretz. The only people left are the poor, the impoverished, the lower castes. Vayagelet Yoyachin, so Yoyachin leaves, and this is uh, the point. Vayamlech Melech Bavelet Matanya Dodo Tachta Vayasevet Shmot Tzidkiyahu. So in his place, Matanya, who now receives the name Tzidkiyahu, we now see the coronation or the installation, rather, of Tzidkiyahu Amelech, and this is the final king. I hesitate to say final. In Mirz Hashem, we will see the final king of Malchus Beis David, which is Melech Hamashiach, which is the King Messiah. But this is the final king for our recorded history thus far of the Davidic dynasty, starting with David HaMelech and Shlomo HaMelech, all the way up to Tzidkiyahu HaMelech, who is installed now by, Melech, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. And we find reference, a very famous reference to the Gerush, or the Gerush Umazgir, which is what we talked about in last week's shir. And we say this Pasuk out loud, because the truth is, is that Already by this point, there's a sense that Yerushalayim has been emptied out of, of its important people. Everybody's important, but it's been emptied out of its, of its uh, elites, of the people that ran Yerushalayim, of the king who's voluntarily uh, essentially abdicated and offered himself up to the conqueror, to Nebuchadnezzar. Yerushalayim, remember, is, is not destroyed yet. Yerushalayim is not destroyed yet, but it is totally emptied out. And we read this Pasuk in, uh, in the intonation of, um, of Megillus Eicha, and it's uh, an interesting bookend because this is frankly where we left off when we last saw all, all of each other. We said in the intonation of Eicha, and 
Uh, for all intents and purposes, it seems that we're going to be reading Eicha uh, again in a similar, in a in, in in a similar secluded and isolated fashion. Uh, we say Ishu Shushan Habira. Ushma Mordechai, Ben Yair, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, Ishimini. Mordechai was a leader. Mordechai was a member of the Anche uh, Knesset Hagedola. He was uh, he was an important leader, and uh, we've uh, not, not the Anche Knesset Hagedola. Mordechai was an important leader. Asher Haglam Yerushalayim. Mordechai was exiled from Jerusalem. Im Agola Asher Haglasa. Im Yechonia Melech Yuda Asher Haglan Nevuchanetzar Melech Babel. So that's exactly what we're referring to over here in Melachim Bet. That is the Gerish. What we're talking about over here is the Gerish of the Cherish Mazger. An interesting artifact that we have. Um, if if you want to have a lot of fun, um, so the uh, uh, wonderful uh, Wikipedia entry to look at is uh, I forgot the name of it now, but there's a Wikipedia index of biblical figures who have reference in extra biblical sources which is really cool. Um, you could Google that. There's a number of figures we mentioned earlier. Uh, the bulla, uh, the bulle, which is the plural of seals. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The bulle of Gemariah ben Shafan and Chilkiah, Kohen Gadol, who were the king and the scribe uh, who discovered the Sefer Torah of Melech uh, Yoshiahu. So another figure that we have extra biblical uh, substantiation for is none other than Yehonia, uh, Yehoyachin, also called Yehonia, um, because we find in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, uh, Yehoyachin's rations tablet. If you take a look over here, I'll zoom in a little bit. So this tablet over here is the rations tablet. Uh, I'll spare you the Akkadian. You can look at the Wikipedia page or the page of the Pergamon Museum of the ancient Near East to see more on it. But this is something that they found uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the ruins of the palaces of Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and it describes the rations, the amount of oil, the amount of wheat, uh, the amount of millet that was given to Yehoyachin and his five sons. And we also have another extra biblical reference that appears in the Chronicles. Babylonians kept very good chronicles. In the Babylonian Chronicles, printed in readings from the ancient Near East, we find the following thing. In the seventh year in the month of Kislev, the king of Akkad, so that's Bavel, mustered his army and marched to Hatu. Hatu is the land of Eretz Israel. And he encamped against the city of Judah. And on the second day of the month of Adar, he captured the city and seized its king. A king of his own choice he appointed in the city and taking the vast tribute, he brought it to Babylon. So this is a description in the Babylonian Chronicles of what we just read in Melachim Bet. So two very fascinating sources. Again, Yehoyachin's rations tablet, description of what Yehoyachin and his sons uh, received. Um, Yehoyachin is called by some as the first exilarch of the Jewish people because uh, even though he was imprisoned by Nebuchadnezzar, he did enjoy some degree of autonomy, uh, some degree of, um, let's just say, some leadership role amongst the Geirish, those who were, uh, who were exiled together with him. So, uh, so Yehoyachin was uh, allotted this, and we have, we have actually a steel. We have, this, uh, we have this tablet that indicates to us what exactly he was allowed uh, to have by Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian captors. So that is uh, so much... For Melech Yehoyachin. Now we have King Tzidkiah. King Tzidkiah for the very rules for eleven years, and Tzidkiah Melech starts off by paying fealty to Nebuchadnezzar. Now we'll see that one of the things that that, Yirmi, that Yirmiyahu encourages again and again after the after after Babylonia has established itself as as dominant 
in, in Eretz Yisrael and in the ancient Near East. So they are constantly encouraged by Yirmiyahu and he, and he, he incurs the opprobrium of many his contemporaries by telling them to submit to Babylon, to submit that the time for trying to be ascendant on our own or trying to, trying to become our own power in the land. So that time has passed. And now is the time to submit to Babylon. And even though, uh, even though we would be vassals, even though we would be in submission to another kingdom, at the very least, that was the right thing to do, at least in Yirmiyahu's perspective. Tzidkiyahu HaMelech rebels against Babylon. And he has had enough. And he decides in the ninth year of his reign, so two years before the end of his reign, he decides to rebel against the Babylonian uh, governors and Nebuchadnezzar by extension. And Yermiah tells us, uh, this is a Pasuk from Sefer Yermiah, in the ninth year, so that is uh, the tenth month, this is the month of Tevet, and on the tenth day of that month, uh, we fast for that with the fast of Asara Beteves. Asara Beteves is the beginning of the period of time that is, that is um, culminating now in Tishabav. And this is a reference to that day. The 10th day of the 10th month, Asara B'tevet, is the day that Nebuchadnezzar comes and besieges Yerushalayim for a second time. It's the second siege of Yerushalayim. And that siege lasts for about two years. And we have 587 or 586. Uh, I want to pause on this for a moment. Uh, first of all, I'm just going to pause for a second. I know I'm switching back and forth between the materials I'm sharing with you. Good night. I love you. I love all you guys also, but that was Sophie. Um, the, I, I, first of all, just uh, want to pause for station identification. I'm tossing out so much, really, because there's so much background to do, but I really just want to learn Safer Yermia already. So I don't want to rush through it because this is all really crucial to understanding Safer Yermia. Uh, so I'm, I'm jumping back and forth between these materials that I'm showing you. So the first thing I want to check to make sure that I'm coherent. Is that, uh, if those that have their cameras on, you could just give me a thumbs up. I always appreciate those that have their cameras on. Thank you so much. Um, and um, not easy to have your camera on the whole time. I'll, I'll, I've been on the receiving end of Zooms uh, and speakers who just keep on droning on. So I know what it's like. Um, the, second, uh, the second thing is that, uh, yes, it, the, the, the year that I put down in this timeline is 587 before the common era for the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. Although... Although uh, there is some scholarly debate. Apparently in like the 1990s, they did a survey of scholars, of, uh, of biblical scholars, and they asked them, what date is the destruction of the first temple? So 11 scholars said that the destruction of the first temple was in 587 BCE, and 11 scholars said that the destruction of the first temple was in 586 BCE. So whichever, whichever date you want to take, it actually is a really complicated matter of squaring the Babylonian chronicles together with uh, Tanakh and trying to figure out um, the different reigns of the kings and aligning that. Whichever one that you want to go with, we went with 587 uh, right now because it squares with the rest of the dates that I've been following up to this point. 587 BCE is the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash by Bavel on the 9th of Av. It's important to point out that while Nebuchadnezzar set the scene for the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, it was not Nebuchadnezzar himself that had destroyed it. It was uh, Nebuchadnezzar Sar HaTabachin, who we're going to see in a moment. King Tzidkiah 
tries to escape Derech Ha'arava. Um, let me see if I could show you, uh, let's see, a map of Israel. So King Tzidkiyahu, let's uh, find a map of Israel, okay? It's, uh, not, it's never a simple thing to find a map of Israel, unfortunately. Um, okay, let's just use this one for the time being. No endorsements of anything that's uh, on this map. But, um, but here's Yerushalayim, Derech Ha'arava, this area, this area, the northern Negev over here, so we call that the Arava. In fact, the Kvish, the, the road that goes down to Eilat nowadays is called Kvish Ha'arava. And essentially, it's described that Sidkiyahu HaMelech tries to flee uh, the siege and the, and the ongoing destruction of Jerusalem. He tries to flee Derech Arava over here, and he's caught somewhere by Arvot Yericho, by the plains of Yericho. Um, you may be familiar. There's some, it's worth, um, it's worth pointing out. I'm curious if anybody has been in this place. Has anybody been in this place? Has anybody done the Kotel Tunnel Tours? Anybody know what, what I'm referring to over here? Uh, I can't see all of you. So that is, this is called Sidkiah's Cave. This is called Sidkiah's Cave because uh, there, is, there are some, I'll put it like this, we'll spend a moment on this. There are some who believe that uh, Sidkiah HaMelech tried to escape through the tunnels. And by escaping through the tunnels, they ended up in this cave, which is really a uh, limestone quarry. And, um, and it's, it's actually, sometimes it's filled with water. Uh, you come out by Shar Shechem when you do it. Uh, let me see if there's an image of it with water. Cannot find one. That's a pretty awesome image of Sharshchem. I cannot find one. Oh, is this one? Well, this is what it looks like at the end of the Kotel Tunnel Tours. You guys know that in a, if I didn't become a rabbi, if I didn't become a rabbi, my dream job, you know what my dream job would be? A tour guide in Israel. That would have been my dream job. I would have loved to. And now that I'm becoming like a Tanakh guy, even more so, I could have like one of those, you have in your knapsack, you have a Tanakh, you have like that thing to make uh, the that thing to make coffee, Turkish coffee, uh, at the end of the hike that everybody gets very impressed with, and, uh, and a map, and like, that's what I want to do. Instead, I became a, a teacher, I guess, but, uh, but, but I would love to do that. Anyway, so some people uh, aver that Sitkiyahu fleed, and that tunnel, that cave is now called Sitkiyahu's cave. Regardless, unfortunately, Sitkiyahu Amelech is caught. And Sitkiyahu Amelech, let's read, and his son, he is blinded, and his sons are killed. Nebuchadnezzar leads the siege. And they encamp surrounding it. And they build dayek or battlements, forts around it. Two years later, the 11th year of Tzidkiyahu's reign. So the siege begins to work. The people are starving inside the city. The city is breached. So the king and his close guard, his warriors, try to leave in the dead of night. And the city is surrounded by the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians, synonymous. He goes the path of the Arava. The final king of Malchus, based on it, is caught in the plains of Yericho on his escape. And they, they 
demolish the people who are with them. They overtake them and they scatter them. They grab the king. He's taken uh, in chains to Babylon in Rivlasa. They killed his sons in front of him. And they blinded the king. He's brought in chains to Babel, and chains like a yoke around his neck. So one of Nebuchadnezzar's main generals, Nebuchadnezzar, Rav HaTabachim, Eved Melech, Bavel, Yerushalayim, Vayisrof, Espeis Hashem. Let me get rid of name of Hashem in case anybody wants to print out. We don't have Shemos. Vespeis HaMelech, Veskol Batei Yerushalayim, Veskol Baes HaGadol Saraf Be'esh. All of the Beis HaMikdash is burnt up, although while this might seem, right, while this Pasuk might seem like such a decisive Pasuk, it's important to recognize that both in the first and second Batei Mikdash, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us that what goes up is really sticks and stones. That the soul of the Beis HaMikdash, that the heart of the Beis HaMikdash, which was the people, that's long gone. And the service of God and the centralization of worship, that's long gone. This is, while this might seem the culmination of everything, the destruction, it's really, uh, I would say that this is after the culmination. This is the result of everything that's happened before. It's an empty house that's burned down. And you could still see remnants, especially in the old city of Yerushalayim. Um, if you've ever been, uh, if you go past the Kikar, I know you're walking in from the Chorva synagogue and there's an alleyway uh, that goes, there's like a little gun there where children play. And right next to it is an opening in the ground and you could see the thickness, how large the walls surrounding First Temple Yerushalayim were. Um, and uh, remnants of that still exist in the old city of Yerushalayim. Uh, they destroy the walls, they break down the city. And finally now, Nevuzradan empties the city out. Almost everybody now is exiled. So the, the poorest are left over to continue to farm the material wealth or the agricultural bounty of Yerushalayim. And, uh, and that, is, that is the end of Yerushalayim uh, and the Beis HaMikdash, the first Beis HaMikdash, uh, we, as we know it, the destruction is complete. And the people are still left. And, and here, in, chronologically now, we're also reaching the end of Sefer Yirmiya. And the end of Sefer Yirmiya deals with the fallout after this destruction. Remember, Yirmiya Navi has been railing and telling the people that this is what is going to happen for, for decades. And he's been telling them now, he's seen essentially three major kings, Yoshiyahu uh, HaMelech, Yehoiakim, and Sidkiyahu. He's seen some kings with shorter reigns uh, in between. He's seen uh, Yehoiachaz and Yehoiakim, uh, and Yehoiachin. Uh, he's seen about five Jewish kings, and he's told everybody that this, that this terrible story over here, at the end of Malachim Bet, which also appears in the 39th parak of Sefer Yermia, he's been telling everybody. Now imagine, imagine what kind of a, 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 a gruesome vindication this is, right? Imagine telling people your entire life that this is what's going to happen if you do not listen, or that this is already happening, and we can do the little we can to try and avert the worst parts of this catastrophe, and he's proven right. 
not only is he proven right, but his life was under threat throughout his entire prophetic career for speaking these words, uh, for speaking this truth to power. He was nearly killed twice. He was left for dead. Uh, he was an outcast. He was uh, not somebody who was universally approved or respected by the society they found themselves in. And uh, here we find Yirmiyahu's ultimate, it's hard to say vindication because this is a result that nobody wanted. This is a terrible result, but this is towards the end. And Yirmiyahu witnesses the destruction, sees the destruction of the first base Hamikdash, and now we're left with the fallout. And Yirmiyahu is still around with the fallout. And this is an important, important thing to point out because we're gonna talk in a moment because everybody looks at Yirmiyahu as this prophet of, of destruction. And yet Yirmiyahu is also this prophet who never stops giving over the word of God, who never stops trying to help the people along, who never stops trying to teach the people and to reprove them morally. He doesn't lose hope in the Jewish people. Even after this chapter 25 of Sefer Malachim or chapter 39 of Sefer Yirmiyahu, when it's all done, Right? You could, if, you, if I'm Yirmiyahu, I'm throwing up my hands and said, I told you so. You didn't listen. And yet Yirmiyahu still, still tries to lead the people along. And, and just when you think things can't get any worse. Right? So now we've covered Tishabav, We've covered Yudzayim Batamas. We've covered Asara Bateves. We're left with one more fast. You know what fast we're left with? The fast of Gedalia. And the fast of Gedalia comes in the aftermath, actually, of the destruction of the temple. So let's take a look. After Yerushalayim is cleared out by Nebuchadnezzar and then Nebuchadnezzar, after it's raised by Nebuchadnezzar, so now we find that Nebuchadnezzar installs a governor of Yehuda by the name of Gedalia ben Achikam. And he's installed by Nebuchadnezzar and he's assassinated by Yishmael ben Netanya in Mitzvah. Here's the story. Okay, it's a little bit longer than this, but the assassination of Gedalia. And, and our fasting for this, you know, you may have heard in school, you know, especially a day after Rosh Hashanah, who could fast at that time. But the fast of Vidalia is almost, in a way, it's, it's the most poignant of all of them because it's the fast that seals everything. It's the fast that shows that we couldn't even come together in the wake of destruction, in the wake of, right, that, that Yirmiyahu's message couldn't even be heard after he was proven right and vindicated like this. Ve'am. So we find over here, the people that are left in the land of Yehuda, of Judah, So, Nebuchadnezzar installs Gedalia. And Gedalia, obviously, you can see from his lineage, from Achikam, from Shafan, Gedalia comes from a noble family, people who have been in the halls of power, people who have been working together with the kings of Malchus based David. Gedalia could have, had, could have practiced or could have led some sort of a unifying role. That's not going to be what happens. So people here, the, the people who are left that have some power or, or are somewhat more, um, somewhat leader figures, so they hear that a governor has been installed and they go to, uh, they go to see him in mitzvah. So those are their names. Gedalyahu swears to them. And essentially what Gedalyahu is saying over here, right? What Gedalia is saying over here is essentially the message, one of the last messages 
of uh, of Yirmiyah is to submit. Is telling Nelech Tzidkiyahu submit to submit to Bavel. Maybe we could stave off the worst possible effects of uh, of what's going on. Maybe we could even spare the Beis Hamikdash. Maybe we could leave the people after the Cheresh Hamazkir still in the land. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And that's really the message of Gedalia. That's really his message as well. And it's a message that's not accepted. He swears, don't fear the Kazdim. Just let's live in their land. We'll be subjugated, right? We'll be subservient to them, but at least we could stay here, right? You would think that the, at least that, right? What you constantly see now in the final chapters of Sefer Melachim and, and, and as it's repeated in Sefer Yirmi is let's just try and save something, a She'eris HaPleita. Let's retain something, a little bit of the former glory. Shavubaret, settle and dwell in this land. Serve the king of Bavel, right? <coughs> I just said God bless you to myself. Um, stay in the land of Bavel; be good, right? Even after, even when it seems all is lost, we could at least try. Except that's not the case. In the seventh month, Hamalucha. So Yishmael has a little bit of royal lineage. Vasara Nashimito, ten men are with him. Vayakuis Vayamos. They kill Gedalia, they assassinate. They assassinate they assassinate Gedaliao. And he dies Vesa And not only that, but they slaughter some of the Chaldean guard, some of the Babylonians that are there. They slaughter the other Jews that are there in the meal as well. Um, that we'll see in Sefer Yermia. Uh, they were uh, they were in a meal at the time, and they were ambushed and killed. And now the people are left with the terrible decision to make, because they know that this is most certainly just killed the governor installed by the by the kingdom that has just utterly destroyed you and ransacked your temple and destroyed your city. So people recognize now that now we have to run away. Now we have to save ourselves. So so we find now, if, if Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar weren't the ones to exile us completely from Yerushalayim and Yehuda, well, we managed to do it to ourselves because of this fear of the retribution and the retaliation that would happen from this murder, from this assassination. So the people leave and they go to Mitzrayim and Yermiyahu is amongst them. Yermiyahu eventually goes out of Eretz Yisrael together with the people to Mitzrayim. Somebody asked in the chat the following question. The reason for the destruction was idol worship. Why is it okay to submit? Doesn't that submit mean submitting to idol worship? And why is this good? Isn't Gedalia a collaborator? It's an excellent question. I, I, I want to stop and, and focus and dwell on it for a second. I think that a lot of times, especially growing up or when I thought I knew a little bit, I still think I know a little bit, and I thought I knew a little bit about, about it, right? So the sense was, well, Gedalia is, right? This is, this is what we're fasting for, Gedalia? Like, you know, he's... Um, uh, you know, you could use uh, a, a collaborator is a good word. There's there's worse words to use, but he's collaborating with those who destroyed us, right? So so that would be well and good. I think we have several compelling reasons uh, to see the, the the assassination of Gedalia as a tragedy. First of all, is that the Navi Yirmiyahu, uh, who's certainly a hero, certainly close to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Navi Yirmiyahu essentially communicates the same message as Gedalia, that uh, that there's a sense. That we've done this to ourselves, that uh, through inaction or through willful disregard or sinful action, we've done this to ourselves. We've allowed this destruction to happen and that we can potentially, like I said, stave off the worst aspects of the destruction and perhaps retain a she'eris ha'plate in the land of Israel by at least submitting. 
The second thing is that Nebuchadnezzar does not necessarily, we don't really find Nebuchadnezzar, we've, we did this throughout Menashe and Amon and, and, and Yehoiakim, they installed idols in the Beis HaMikdash and, and throughout Eretz Yisrael. We don't really find this from Nebuchadnezzar. Terrible Rishayim. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar is a tool of Hashem. Yirmiyahu, like we said last week, two weeks ago, Yirmiyahu sees Nebuchadnezzar as an Eved Hashem, as a tool of Hashem, as something as a, merely a political pawn. Now, with that idea in place, I, I don't know if submission to Nebuchadnezzar would have necessitated submitting to idolatry. I think what it means is that we would have to pay a, a large tribute as Nebuchadnezzar had already collected with the Gerish of the Cherish of Masker, Nebuchadnezzar installed Melech Tzidkiyahu, and as long as Tzidkiyahu paid fealty to him, we were able to continue apace, as long as we made sure we know who our boss was. So I don't necessarily see uh, Gedalia's role as being one that's a collaborationist role. Um, it, it, he's collaborating in the sense that he is a governor and he's a functionary of the Babylonian government, but it could have meant that, that we would have had a, a stronger degree of continuity in the land, a stronger Sherita Pleita. With the assassination of Gedalia, all hope for that is lost. I hope that that, uh, I hope that, that does a little bit to answer the question. Let's, uh, let's, uh, so we're going to really be wrapping up a little bit today, um, but we'll begin with the book of Jeremiah. And, uh, and I told you we would get up to it. We only have about uh, 10 minutes left. But I told you we'd get up to the book of Jeremiah. What we're going to do for the first unit or so of our learning, as I told you, we're not really going to uh, read through Sefer Yermia from front to end. Uh, you don't need to listen to Josh Rosenfeld read you Hebrew, and the translation is here anyway. That's not the point. Uh, hopefully it's not why you came. Uh, we're going to try and focus on some of the pivotal moments and pivotal prophecies of Sefer Yermia. And what better place to start than with the first prophecy of Yermiyahu? And in doing so, I want to start by asking a question of who wrote the book of Yirmiyahu. So from the traditional perspective as espoused by Chazal in Bava Basra, Daf Tesvava Menalef, is that Yirmiyahu wrote uh, three books. The three books, the Gemara tells us, Yirmiyahu Kasav Sifro, Vesefer Melachim, Vikinos. That Yirmiyahu was responsible for writing his book, Sefer Yirmiyahu. And we even find references, uh, you know, meta uh, metatextual references within Sefer Yermia of Yermia writing this book and, and uh, an understanding that's really probably a collection of scrolls of different prophecies that were put together by Yermia himself of his own prophecies uh, that Yermia wrote Sefer Melachim as well with Ruach HaKodesh and also Kinos. Kinos is a reference to Megillah's Eicha although Chazal seemed to understand in other places as well that while we can ascribe uh, Megillus Eicha to Yermia, uh, in actuality it was uh, it, now it was Baruch Ben Neria it was Baruch Ben Neria Yermia who's a close student and follower and scribe who wrote Sefer uh, who wrote Megillus Eicha so those are the three books that we ascribe to Yermia what about its place in Tanakh where does this book appear in Tanakh? Well, it, there's a little bit of a complicated story over here because there's the difference between the chronological approach, uh, which is actually, we'll see what we follow nowadays. There's a chronological approach and then there's the approach of Chazal. Chazal have a different order of the Svarim in Tanakh. Chronologically, it's Sefer Yish. After the book of Kings, after Sefer Melachim, so the first of the prophets uh, after that is Yeshaya is Isaiah. Isaiah prophecies uh, many, many years before, uh, before, before Yirmiyahu. Um, however, Chazal, Chazal don't put it in that order. 
Chazal put Yeshaya after Yermia. I'm going to show you the Gemara over here. The Gemara is on the bottom. Our rabbis taught us. Sidron shall Nevi'im. The order of the prophets. Yoshua, Shoftim. So the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, the book of Samuel 1 and 2, book of Kings 1 and 2, Yermia, V'yichaskel. This is how the rabbis, and then Yeshaya and Shnei Masar and Treasar. This is how Chazal imagined the presentation of Tanakh, right? That's at least how Chazal presented it. The problem with that is that if you would even open up like an art scroll or, or our Tanakhs nowadays, it's not like this. Instead, Yeshaya doesn't appear before Treasar. Yeshaya appears right after Sefer Malachim, before Yermia, according to the proper chronological order. Why would it be that Chazal took the Sefer Yermia out of chronological order? Why would Sefer Yermia be the first right after Melachim? So Michti, the Gemara asks, Yeshaya Kadimi Yermia v'Yecheskel. Yeshaya came before Yermia. Yecheskel lives in prophecies contemporaneous to Yermia towards the end of Yermia's life. He's a little bit younger. He's also a Kohen, by the way. So Maybe the book of Isaiah should be before Yermia. So we answer, Because the last five chapters of Sefer Melachim describe destruction and doom as it is creeping, the Yermia Kulo Churbana, and the book of Yermia is all a book of destruction. And the book of Ezekiel, at the beginning it's destruction, but it ends off and finishes with prophecies of consolation. And the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah, prophet Navi Yeshaya, who prophesied many, many years before Yermia, who, de- who describes in prophecy the destruction of both the first and the second Beis HaMikdash, Yeshaya is seen as a sefer. It's described by Chazal as Kulei Nechemta, a book that is in toto a de- a, um, consolation. So what do, what do we do? We take the end of Malachim, which is destruction, and juxtapose that, continue directly into Yermia, which is destruction, and after Yechezkel, which finishes off with consolation, we begin with consolation. So again, Malachim ends with destruction. Yermia is all destruction. Yechezkel begins with destruction and ends with consolation. And Yeshaya is all consolation. A kind of, um, what, what's, the, what's the fancy word for it that they use? Um, uh, chiasmus. A kind of chiasmus, right? Uh, sort of like an A, uh, an A, B, B, A kind of thing, that we have destruction, destruction, consolation, consolation. Uh, that seems to be the way. However, that is, not, uh, that is not the case in our Tanakhs. Nowadays, we present it chronologically. Uh, we already have, uh, we'll take a look at some of these sources next week. The Radak already told us uh, that this is not the case. And we already find uh, the Mincha Shai, for example, who is a very famous a philologist and, uh, and scholar of the Mesora, Rav Yedidya Shlomo Rafal Nertzi of uh, Mantua. He was the rabbi of Mantua. He wrote a sefer called Mincha Shai. It actually appears in many of our Chumashim, especially uh, if you're a Balkore or uh, if you read from the Torah um, in, in, every, in every good tikkun, it will come together with a Mincha Shai. And the Mincha Shai writes the following, and I'll leave you with this. He says, Ulam Kadmonenu Bnei Hagola. Despite the fact that Chazal described uh, the order of Tanakh 
as, this, as it were, thematically, as we just presented it, in that the book of Jeremiah is described as all destruction. So he says, Lo nahogu kein. Kadmonenu, the people came before us, did not practice like this. Rather, the practice from time immemorial in the Jews of the diaspora was to keep Tanakh's chronological order. Uh, and what I really want to continue with next week is talking a little bit about what we mean when we say, when Chazal tell us, that the book of Jeremiah is a book that is Kulo Churbana. There's a book of complete destruction. Because I think that what we're going to see in the very, very first prophecy, the very first prophecy that that Yirmiyahu gets is we see something that belies that notion, that we see that Yirmiyahu, while indeed being a prophet that chronicles and warns of the impending doom and destruction, there's plenty of that. Uh, Yirmiyahu is also a prophet whose, uh, whose book is filled with many deep consolations and many, uh, many deep, uh, deeply hopeful moments that are struck. And I would love to end off on this particularly hopeful point and wish everybody a wonderful Shavua Tov. Uh, wonderful Shavua Tov. You can still say that, I guess. Um, and, uh, and I want to thank you all for learning.